Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon at Fountain City Church. We hope that you are blessed by this message today. If you'd like to learn more, you can check out our website at fountaincity.org. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. We are teaching through the gospel of Mark, and we have made it all the way up to verse 35. Um, If you are new to our church family, we are pushing through the scriptures, and we're actually teaching kind of verse by verse through the gospel of Mark, um, which is kind of a different muscle, maybe if you're from a different part of the church. Uh, Maybe you're used to topical teaching or very thematic teaching, but what we're doing is what they call expository teaching, where we let the scriptures speak for themselves. Um, And so we're going to do that this morning. Um, And if you're a guest with us, we believe that the church is far more than brick and mortar Sunday morning services. Amen? But it is the family of God who is living intentionally as disciples of Jesus and being on mission. In other words, your lives and your devotion to Jesus has to go past this Sunday morning. For some of you, you're asking questions about what that may look like or feel like or how that operates. For others of you, you are devoted to Jesus, but maybe you grew up in cultural Christianity where this was the point. And so I I like to say it, it feels countercultural every time, but this is not the point. This is the hub to empower you to works of service. So that when you exit these doors today, you are living your life intentionally on mission in the earth. Amen? Is that good? So the scriptures today, listening to them is not the point. James says, don't just listen to the word, but do what it says. It's, we don't want to be like those people who, he says, look into the mirror, see a reflection of our face, and turn and walk away and forget what we look like. Uh, we want to be like those who have really listened to what God's saying. And so this morning, maybe the, the holiest thing that we can do is just say, Lord, open our hearts. We really want to hear Lord, I thank you that when you speak, you actually require that we do something with it. Father, I pray today that we wouldn't be those who just take in more information. This isn't just another social media channel or another IG reel. This is actually God who is speaking to us, the Holy Spirit who's animating his word to enliven us and to cause us to live differently, to live transformed lives. So Lord, would you just help us to hear you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Jesus has been on the hot seat for the last three or four weeks in our text, all through Mark chapter 12. Um, He has been asked questions by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, by the Herodians, and last week by one of the teachers of the law. And this week, Jesus turns the tables on them, and he begins to ask some questions. Now, questions in Judaism was like a central way that they wrestled through the authority of the text. And so where we like to teach and preach, it's very like one directional. In Judaism, they would get into public squares and they would start to ask questions. And it almost sounds like they're fighting, (laughs) like they're arguing. It's an aggressive culture and it's very in your face. How many of you have ever been to Israel and seen how this works? All right. So you kind of know. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. Listen to what Jesus says. It says, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Now that phrase, the son of David, was actually a nickname for the word Messiah or Christ. Uh, And if you're new to the scriptures, that word Messiah is the Hebrew word. It's exactly the same as the Greek word Christ. It simply means the anointed one. 
And for them, they were always aiming all of their text and literature, all their prophecy around this coming anointed one, this Christ or Messiah, who was going to come in the line of King David. He was a human. When they read Messiah, they never thought of any kind of divine person or eternal savior. That wasn't even in their mentality. What they were thinking simply was that this guy is coming who's going to be a physical king. And so the phrase son of David was a nickname for Messiah. And in Mark's gospel, he's declaring something pretty radical. In fact, if he came in here this morning and said it and you'd never heard it, you would be equally shocked. His declaration is that Jesus of Nazareth is not just a good teacher, not just a good preacher or prophet, not even just the Messiah, but that he is the Son of God. Now, now we know that because you grew up in cultural Christianity, I'm guessing. You've heard this your entire lives. Can you imagine hearing that for the first time? Can you imagine sitting in the room where they said, hey, 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 Jesus is not just the guy who died on the cross, and he's not just the guy who could be the Messiah. He's actually God's son. So, so this is a rattling declaration. And in this moment, Jesus is pointing to their misconceptions about the role of Messiah and his identity, and he is exposing that there is more than him being just a man. Now, how did they arrive at this conclusion? We're going to look at 2 Samuel 7, 12 very quickly. Why did they think that the Messiah was the son of David and the son of David alone? 2 Samuel 7, 12 says it like this. And this is God speaking to King David, who is uh, going to be passing away shortly. It says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up for you offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Listen to that. So when the Jews think about this coming Messiah, who we know as Jesus, the only thought that they have is that he is someone who is descended from King David's line who would come and rule on the throne of Israel. And Jesus comes into the temple of all places, seats himself down, and begins to poke holes in their theology. Why is it? that people say that the Son of Man is the Son of David, or that the Messiah is the Son of David. And he goes on in verse 36. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And David himself, David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. Now, verse 36 is actually a quote from Psalm 110. Jesus is looking back to a scripture that the Israelites know full well. He's taking something from the middle of their culture, and he's saying, this is what we understand to be true. And so let me use that to explain how the Messiah is so much more than just a man. And this is really interesting. That psalm was given to the kings of Israel um, as a coronation speech. And so they would actually pray this over the new kings of Israel who were stepping in, and they would say, this is God's son, and God is going to make every enemy a footstool for his feet. But problematically, like hundreds of years later, when the people of Israel are taken into captivity, they have no king, they are slave labor in a foreign nation, this became a prophetic promise. The nation of Israel started to say, this is the sign that God is actually going to bring about this declared Messiah and he will make every enemy a footstool for his feet. Now, this is why this is really interesting to me. 
Jesus is sitting in the temple and he's talking to people, many of whom believe that he is actually the Messiah and they know he's talking about himself. Think about that. Jesus comes into the the synagogue on a Sunday morning and he reads out of Mark chapter 4. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me and he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Jesus does this over and over where he presents himself before a group of people and he says, this is who I actually am. And, And in this moment, Jesus is in the middle of the temple and he is pointing back to himself and he is teaching them to read through the scriptures who he actually is. Now, I want you to look in your Bibles. If you're new to the scriptures or you're kind of like wrestling with what they mean, I want you to look at the difference between the two lords in verse 36. Can you do that? How many of you have a physical Bible in your hand? Anybody? Great. I'm going to encourage you, bring your physical Bible with you. Um, And if you don't, look at the difference between the two lords in verse 36. Can anybody tell me what the difference is in your Bible? Say it out loud. I can't hear you. The first one's capitalized. The second is not. Is that the same on you version? Everybody using you version? Both of yours are capitalized. Interesting. All right. Did you guys know that that matters? You're like, no, I didn't really know. Some of you are like, yes, I knew and you're lying, but it's fine. It's fine. We're in church. Nobody knows. Okay. So if you're looking in the scriptures, and um, I don't know when they began this, but if it's an all caps Lord, it's actually the, the personal name of God. It is the name Yahweh. And if it's a lowercase Lord, if it's capital L, but then all the other letters are lowercase, it's just the Hebrew word Adonai, which means master or Lord, but it doesn't mean Yahweh. Does that make sense? Everybody? So so what is that passage actually saying? It's saying, God, Yahweh, said to my master, sit at my right hand until I put put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus says, hey, David actually calls him Lord. So how can he be a son of David? Now, for us, this doesn't make quite as much sense. um, But it would be like my dad coming up this morning. He's in the back. And he says, Master. He just looks at me and he calls me Master, which happens all the time. Never. It never happens. Of course it doesn't happen. It's weird. Why would anybody do that? To have your, your father or your grandfather or your great-great-great-grandfather come and call you Lord or Master, Jesus is saying, guys, you know that that's not how this works. Culturally, that's not how this works. Why is it happening? And what Jesus is hinting at here is that he's not just the son of David, that he's far more than that. That I can't just be the son of the son of the son of David. I've actually got to be his master. And if I'm David's master, then I must be God. And he, he whispers it. He doesn't even resolve it for him. He just leaves it right there. And when, when we read this, we have to wrestle with this reality that we have a bad habit of accepting Jesus, but only on our own terms. Right? I, I love Jesus, but I love Jesus in the spaces and categories and moments that I want him. And, and I don't want him to come in and assume more space than I've given to him. And maybe to you, like them, he's just a principal teacher. Maybe you grew up in a culture where Jesus was quoted when it came to like making yourself a better person or being a good citizen. But Jesus is claiming more territory here. Or maybe he's just a prophet who speaks against injustice to you or any kind of social ills. He certainly does that. But he seems to also be declaring that he is far more than anything we have space for. 
Maybe he's just a voice of leadership. I've come through churches in my time that just use Jesus' teachings as a way to grow your leadership so that more people will follow you. Are you with me? Which gets twisted up real fast. Or maybe he's just a historical Jewish king. But what Jesus is pointing at is that there is so much more to who he is and to what he's been anointed to do. He doesn't fit neatly into my categories because he isn't a teacher or a prophet or a leader or a king. He is the teacher. He is the one who can dig into the roots of God's heart and expose the reality of what God says is true and what's not. He is the prophet. He is the one who exposes the the heartbeat of God in the world and how to live pure among a generation that is dark and doomed. He is the leader. He is the one who will lead us and guide us in the way that we should go. He is the king of all kings, and he commands allegiance. Are you with me? Am I speaking to the dead this morning? Are you awake? All right, you're with me. The, the, the uncomfortable reality of this passage is that Jesus says, you guys have the Bible and the scriptures, you've been entrusted with the covenant, but you still don't fully know who I am. And, and it might be possible that we as 21st century believers in the West have some sense of who Jesus is, some uh, sensibility about what he can do or what he's up to in our lives, and Jesus might come and confront us, am I just that, or is there in fact so much more that I am in your life. And this morning, I would simply ask you this. Who do you think Jesus is? Who have you received him as? Is he just coaching you into being a better leader? Is he just pronouncing a prophetic word over our culture? Is he just teaching you what the scriptures say? Or is he the anointed one of God? And is he the son of God? And if he is, that changes the picture dramatically. Are you with me? Because as soon as we think we have him pegged, Jesus asks questions to expose how we have diminished him and to call us to a deeper devotion. Are you devoted to Jesus no matter where he goes? No matter what he is saying about himself, are, are you committed to him? Because this is the call to belong to Jesus. In verse 38, Jesus continues on. And he says, as he taught, remember, he's in the temple. He says, watch out. Can you imagine being in the middle of the temple and hearing somebody, I like to think Jesus screamed this, okay, just for a dramatic effect. Watch out, you know, (laughs) there's crowds in there. If you've ever been to Israel in the temple, it's limestone everywhere, everything echoes. There is nothing quiet in the entire nation, okay? And Jesus is in the middle of this group of people and he cries, watch out. Now, if you were to pause right there, uh, in fact, I'm glad the scripture is not on the screen. If you were to pause right there, who is Jesus going to tell us to watch out for? Huh? Pharisees? Okay, good guess. Roman soldiers, maybe? I don't know. Nero? That would be a good one. The devil. Watch out for the devil. <laughs> Scream that in whatever restaurant you go to today, I promise you. I will give you $3 immediately. Not five, not two, $3. He says, watch out and listen to exactly who he says. If if it were me, what I'm guessing Jesus is about to say is, watch out for the jihadists. Watch out for pedophiles. Watch out for rapists or liberals if you're conservative. Or if you're conservative. uh, Or if you're a liberal, conservatives. Watch out for those conservatives. 
Watch out for the World Health Organization or that NWO. You with me? Socialists, watch out. It's not what Jesus says at all. Jesus doesn't point to any of that, but talking to us, to the people of God, he says, you know who you should be really, really aware of? The teachers of the law. Now, they like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplace. They love to have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Remember, okay, hold on. How many of you like to people watch? Anybody? Okay, I'm one of those. I got it honest. My dad is a people watcher. Um, he's in the back right now so he can watch the room, all right? I used to love going to like airports or the mall, and um, if you're a man and you don't love to shop, you know what you do? You just look at all the weird people and you say things. Uh, and, and so Jesus has gone to the temple, and he is people watching, and he is sitting there, and he is actually talking about what he's thinking. <laughs> he's looking around, and he sees this entire group of people called the teachers of the law, who we bumped into last week. And remember, there's some hybrid between lawyer and teacher and theologian. And these people have an incredible amount of influence in the nation of Israel. And Jesus is sitting there in the middle of the temple, and he sees these, these wonderfully dressed, very popular, very vain leaders walking through the room, and he just starts to talk out loud about it. <laughs> like, this is not where you want to be in this moment. And look at what in the world he says. He says, these guys... They like to walk around in their flowing robes. They love to be greeted in the marketplace. They want the important seats. They devour the houses of widows. He's saying, you, you see them here, but are you looking here? The modern-day version of this in faith communities, sadly, would be pastors and leaders and influencers like myself. Jesus is actually standing in a moment, and he is casting judgment on leaders who say we are over faith communities. Now, this is really terrifying. I can tell you because being a teacher and a leader comes with a very high accountability. Uh, later on in the New Testament, it says, most of you should not want to be a teacher. And I would really like to amplify this this morning. Most of you should not want to hear your own perspective and voice on situations because God will hold you to a higher account. When I get up here on Sunday mornings and on Saturday nights, you can ask my wife or people who are close to me, I kind of die a thousand deaths every week because I'm terrified about what can happen here. I'm terrified about what happens when I speak something that I believe God is saying about a passage of Scripture. And for some of you, your hearts are so tender to the Lord, you will take what I say in and you will actually put it to work. You understand? That is terrifying. That means that my heart has to be laid bare before the Lord because he will hold me to account on what you hear me say, or rather on what I say. Some of you hear all kinds of stuff that I never say. <laughs> One of my favorite practices is when people come up after the service, and they're like, man, the Lord really ministered to me when you said this. And I say, I never said that. I literally didn't say those words. Somehow between my mouth and your ears, the Holy Spirit transmitted something else. <laughs> but I, I'm held accountable to that. And Jesus actually warns people to look out at these leaders, these people of influence, and to be careful who they follow and what we emulate in those people. But listen to me. As much as this is about leaders and pastors and teachers, I think there's a loud warning for all of us right now. And here's why. 
We live in an age with social media where all of us use our what? Platforms. Have you ever noticed that they call it your platform? Why do you think they do that? Social media has equipped you with a microphone that you didn't earn and a platform you didn't build. And God didn't give it. And suddenly everyone is given the gift of influence. Holy cow. And so I wonder how many of us die a thousand deaths before we post. I wonder how many of us wrestle through what it means to be obedient and humble um, before the Lord, before we put something up on social media as though it's the law, the truth, because that is really what has been sold to us. We just turn up the volume on our voices and preferences and perspectives, and we preach our message to the world around us, and we say, this is the truth. Can I just caution you? Be terrified. Be terrified of what you're putting out as the law and the truth, because people might actually be listening. And if you're not really, really submitted to God, if it's really not him telling you to do that, oof, be careful. So let's look at Jesus' critiques. Everybody okay? All right. Yes, everybody good? Okay. All right. What are Jesus' critiques of the teachers of the law and all of us? Uh, let's look through them for just a minute. I want us to, to push into them, and I want us to wrestle with what Jesus is actually saying about this leadership. Number one, they walk around in flowing robes. What's he saying? He's saying they want to be seen. And they want to be seen not just through being present with people. They actually use fashion and their clothing and vanity in order to draw attention. You know, when we hear the word modesty, it's not something we hear anymore. Um, that word has, been, has become um, just kind of thrown out with the rest of the garbage. When we hear about modesty, what we think it means often is to cover our bodies so that we don't sexualize our bodies. Right? Everybody in agreement? But modesty actually means just don't try to draw attention to yourself. Just live in the kind of way that it's okay for you to be in a space without needing to be in the spotlight of that space. Again, our culture has really crafted this terrible idea that we are so important that everyone needs to see us all the time. And he's saying the, one of the problems with this group of people, the teachers of the law, is that they're so addicted to the limelight and to people looking at them that their clothing became a mediator to get you to look. Anybody see the problem with our culture? <laughs> Even within the church, I mean, we just, we like to polish everything up. I want you to look at me and say, man, that dude looks like he's got it going on. She is looking fit. All kind of stuff, right? Like you're just... There's all kinds of things that are around. I'm so sorry. I'm embarrassing some of you who are really close to me. Um, we, we confuse our fashion and our vanity with our being liked or needed or wanted. And listen, I, I think that Jesus wants to get our attention. Friends, men and women in here, what kind of value are you putting on how impressive you can be in front of people's eyes? What kind of attention are you trying to draw to yourself? Secondly, they like to be greeted with respect. Um, this is something that really, I think, pricks at the hearts of almost every pastor and leader in church congregations, for sure. They love the feeling of being important to other people, of being celebrated and seen. And uh, there's something particular about folks like me, because often pastors become like church mascots, right? And like we go to a function and I hear somebody say, like, that's my pastor. It's like... 
<laughs> I didn't know I was possessed. <laughs> I've been possessed by this group of people. I am now a mascot. But Jesus says these guys are actually chasing. They're pursuing adoration from other people and the tension. They want things to become about them. You guys feel it? You feel the tension in that? This is one of those gut check times where Jesus is talking about characteristics that maybe we all carry to a degree. Thirdly, they sit in the important seats where everyone can see them. Now, in, in the synagogue, if you were to go in there this morning, and this was a Jewish synagogue, there would be a rabbi teaching um, at you know, some kind of ancient pulpit, not a, not a choir stand like this. But then there were a row of seats behind the rabbi, and that is where the teachers of the law would come and sit, facing the crowd so that everybody could see them. He's saying they're really interested in you knowing that they're special. They want the most important seat. They devour widows' houses. Evidently, they were using their legal background to also twist what is true and just and good. They were stealing from people. And finally, they make lengthy prayers for show. They're actors. They're saying all this stuff just to get attention. Now, if I could condense that list down to two things, I think it's this. That these people live for the praise of people and external gain. What does it mean to be a teacher of the law? What does it mean that Jesus is castigating these kinds of things in people? He's saying this stuff is rotten when you live for the praise of people and for external gain. Now, I've got to be honest with you guys. That list is rough. Anybody else with me? Anybody else feel like you need to go take a shower? Like, I need to drink a sip of coffee. I need to go and just stare out into the woods by myself for a little bit. This is deeply reflective stuff. Yeah, I, I read this and immediately I felt like I was looking at parts of me. Like There are places where I want influence and respect. Oof. God, what do I do with that? How do I surrender that again? Can we stand before the mirror of our own lives and say, God, would you help me by your word? Would you shape those places in me where maybe I've been drawn into this need to be an influencer? I've been drawn into this need to be seen for X, Y, or Z. I've been, and the list goes on and on. This list is really confrontational for all of us. And I just want to ask you this morning, what about you? What from that list stands out to your heart? What does the spirit quicken? Where is there an urgency in you? And maybe this morning, like you're reading that list and he just has you highlight one. Or circle one. It's just a place where the Spirit is speaking to you and saying, hey, I just want to talk about this. I want to help you grow in freedom from this area because the applause of men, Proverbs says, is a crucible for man. One of the things that I am judged by and that shapes me is when people applaud me. Because when people give me applause, it is easy for me to start to slip into people worship and to remove my heart from worshiping God. Are you with me? So, so what are those places in us? And I think the Holy Spirit may just be highlighting those things to you this morning. And so Jesus is speaking about the teachers of the law here, but I think we can justifiably point to a much larger question because he's about to compare this person to another person altogether. And the question is, who is influencing who you're becoming? He's looking at them and saying, hey, beware these people. Don't, don't become like these people, but I'm going to tell you exactly who you should become like. Not those around you who are worried about their outward appearance and not those who are consumed with influence and fame and the need to be seen and respected. Don't be like those people, but here's who you should be like. Verse 41, 
Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Now, let's pause right there. This is fantastic, okay? I wish on a Sunday morning we could just set up a little Jesus cardboard cutout. We put them right here, and then we put the offering buckets right in front of them, and we say, now give. You know? And you come up with your offering, and you have to look beady-eyed Jesus on the cardboard cutout in the face while you give your money. Is that a good idea for anybody else? This is one of the weirdest moments. Jesus is in the temple, and he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go by the giving container and sit there and watch people. And so I just envision Jesus, like, just moseying up and crossing a leg, you know, and just watching. And that's exactly what he's doing. He's, uh, if you know anything about the temple, this is the place where they were giving money. It was in the court of women. Uh, so ancient Judaism was a very sexist place. Ladies, you couldn't even go into the inner courts where the men would go. You were kind of subjugated to the outer courts, the women's courts. Um, but in the women's courts, there were these 13 horn-shaped offering boxes. And you could go and you could give your offerings there in these boxes. And so if you were coming to give your tithes and your offerings at the temple in, in, uh, in Jerusalem, you would go to the court of women and you would drop them there in those horn-shaped boxes. And Jesus says, that's where I'm going to go to people watch. I'm going to sit right by the giving box and I'm going to look at what everybody gives. Interesting. He says, many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and she put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. And calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now think about that. I mean, Jesus has just spent the last several minutes critiquing the teachers of the law and telling us who we should beware. And now he's telling us who we should be like. And how many of you thought who we should be like was the poor widow? He's saying, don't be like that popular crew over there that's well-dressed and influential and has it going on. Be like the poor widow who only has two small copper coins to give. Do you see the, the picture here? Do you feel the tension? This morning, word of the Lord, Jesus says, don't be like the popular influential people who are just trying to draw attention through what they wear and how they live. Be like those who are impoverished and give to God out of a heart that is fully devoted. You say, I don't want to be like the poor widow. And Jesus says, you've got to learn how to see how I see. Because you may actually look at those who are empowered by others, those who receive the applause of others, and think, that's the kind of life that I need and want. And Jesus says, those people will be punished most severely. That's how he finishes that passage. But this lady, she's got my attention. There is something about this poor widow that has drawn my heart and my eye to her. This is exactly who Jesus celebrates. So what is it that Jesus notices and heard that we need to see this morning? Uh, verses 41 and 42 tell us that while the rich are throwing in large amounts of money, how many of you know rich people have large amounts of money? This is kind of a, a, a normal situation here. He says that the poor widow comes and she puts in two small coins. And Jesus says, and this blows me away, she gave more. Now, if you're looking at the pot, you're going, well, uh, Jesus, she didn't. She didn't give more. She gave two pennies. That guy just gave $1,000. So tell me how this poor little widow gave more. And Jesus says she gave everything 
that she had out of her poverty while other people were just giving out of their margin. Just here's 10% of my wealth. And she gave 100% of what she had. That word for poor is actually used for a poor person who's reduced to begging on the streets for survival. This isn't just a widow like in our culture. This isn't just somebody who lost a husband. Um, To be a widow in ancient Jewish culture meant you had no hope and no prospects. There's a reason why there's so much talk about caring for the widow and the oppressed and the poor because God's heart longs to, uh, to covenant with people who have no hope. But this lady actually has nothing, right? And what Jesus wants us to know is that this lady was a beggar outside the temple and what was given to her to provide for her food that day, she walked in and gave to God. Man, does that get to anybody else? Some of us very reasonable, logical, financial people are like, that's not good stewardship. You shouldn't give 100% to God. You should give 10%. And Jesus says, man, she's got my heart. That lady, whatever she had in her pocket, she just gave it to God. What is he after? I think more than anything, Jesus is trying to show us that the kind of people we're becoming and the kind of people who are influencing us ought not be those people who are shiny and sparkly on the outside, but who are dead on the inside. But it should be those people who, no matter how humble and even poor they are, they are fully devoted, hearts open to God. They are fully willing to give everything to God. And why is this so central? Why is this so important to Jesus? It's so important because Jesus has just told them, I'm not just the Messiah, I'm also the Son of God, and I'm about to give my life for the world. What is it that Jesus longs for? He longs to look around at brothers and sisters and find faithfulness. Not people who are just polishing the outside of the cup. Not us just trying to um, promote ourselves and influence and make ourselves something so that people will give us the applause. He's actually calling us to be the kind of people whose hearts are so fully devoted to him that we are willing to give everything. And in our culture, we have made it weird to be the people who give everything, right? I want to think a little longer on that. I'm going to pray a little bit harder, brother. Are you with me? We call it wisdom. Isn't that treacherous? When you call faithlessness wisdom, you're in trouble. Jesus says, I want your all. I want everything. Friends, what we give in our poverty and lack says more about what's in our hearts than what we give in our wealth and margin. What I give to God when I am struggling, some of you are actually going through hard seasons, what you give to him right now is the sweetest offering that you can't give to him outside of the season. In your poverty, in your lack, in your desperation, God longs for people who come with a sacrifice of praise. Is something that it seems unusual, abnormal. The woman who comes and she breaks her, her jar, her precious perfume, and pours it on his feet, right, and, and his hair, and she is washing him with her tears. We would say, too much. The other disciples looked at her and they said that. What are you doing? You're wasting that money. And Jesus says, you will always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. And from now on, everywhere I go, her name will be remembered. I wonder how many of us are counting our coins saying, 
10% or 8% or 15%. And God says, I want all of you. I want your whole heart. I want your radical devotion. I want your yes to me on a Tuesday in the middle of the day when you have that annoying employee beside you who you just want to slap. Like, I, I want it all. I, I want your love sick heart turned to me. So, which one are we? Flowy robes or poor widows? Which one are we? And what have we made popular even in our own lives? Who are we looking to to become? You know, it's really difficult right now. One of the things that's hard in our culture is we spend more time talking about pastors and churches and nonprofits that we are not connected to on the other side of the world than we are our own community who's under our feet. We have a celebrity church, celebrity Christian thing that's got to die. And I do think God will kill it. Are you with me? Everybody with me? He's judging our need to be in the limelight. He's judging the motivations of his people. Because what he longs for is the heart of the hidden poor widow. The one who's fully devoted to him. I think it's important for us to see that there are two things at play here. Number one, Jesus is commenting on our generosity. We can't get away from that. Uh, The Jews actually practiced the tithe as kind of a cultural norm. It started all the way back in the Old Testament when Abram, um, he encountered a man named Melchizedek in the wilderness. And God gave Abraham favor in a battle that he was waging. And because of that, he gave a tenth of everything he had. And some of you are new to church culture or you're asking questions about like, does the tithe matter? Is that a thing that we even need to worry about? What I will tell you is that all through the Old Testament, God declared that the tithe was an important part of what it meant to belong to him. And it did two things. It made the temple a storehouse, and it fed the Levites and the priests. It cared for God's people who were caring for his home, and it actually made the temple a storehouse. And Jesus is actually pointing back at this practice of generosity that is deeply rooted in the Jews. And he is saying, this lady who gave two pennies is more important than that guy who gave $1,000. So what do we do with that? Because in the New Testament, all of a sudden, there's very little said about tithing. And some of you are deeply interested right now because maybe you wrestle with tithing, right? Jesus actually talks about tithing, but he does it in a very passive way. He says, you should have given your mint, deal, and cumin. You should have tithed. They're an agricultural society. He says, bring a tenth of everything that God gave to you, but don't deny justice and mercy. You with me? So he's saying, make sure that your heart remains generous and faithful, but don't forget to also be socially generous. Don't also forget to respond to the needs of people around you. Give to your synagogue and to the people around you. And that is his his kind of first step. Can I take it a step further? The law of the New Testament seems to be that we fulfill the spirit of the law. So what is taught in The Old Testament as a legalistic law, do these things and God is happy. He says, I want you by the presence of the Holy Spirit to live up to the spirit of the law. In other words, the tithe is not the point. What does he want? What percentage does God want? 100%. You know what happens when you have 100% when he's got 100% of you? You're not measuring how much is in your pocket. To figure out what the 10% mark is. It's him. He's got all of me. God, do you want 90 today? You can have 90. It's yours. You want 95? You want 7? Are you with me? 
The tithe is not the point. The tithe is that little bit. How many hunters do I have in the room? Anybody? It's the sight at the end of the nose of the gun that gives me something to aim at, but it gives me a broader sense of what's possible, right? Isaac, I'm not a good hunter, but I know this, that if I know exactly where the kill zone is, I can actually, there's a, there's a margin for error around that. And the, the tithe is the sight that gives me a focus. Hey, God wants your heart. But in the New Testament, he says, I want all of you, 100%. I'm not into the 10% just owning the Levites like the Old Testament. In the, in the New Testament, you're all a royal priesthood and holy believers. I want 100% of you. And so the, the question for us is not, do you tithe? The question is, does he have all of your heart, and is it reflected in your generosity? Oof. You're like, I was just trying to get the tithe thing done, Grant. That's great. So good. And for some of you, maybe you're new believers or you're in a really financially difficult season and tithing feels impossible. Can I encourage you? God wants your heart. And your, your checkbook will follow or your cash app will follow. I don't even know how to do that now. <laughs> some digital form of giving will follow, okay? When God has your heart, he has everything else. Now, now here's, here's a hint. If your checkbook or wallet never get involved, chances are he doesn't have your heart. Ooh, dang. Get him. Chances are he doesn't have your heart. Years ago, I was uh, taking a guy who came to Evangel Temple. He needed a ride across town. And so I gave him a ride across town. And um, we would get hit up for money all the time because in ch churches kind of become local bank accounts, you know, for a lot of the community in need. Um, and so I gave this guy a ride across town, and you get jaded when you get hit up all the time for money. Um, some of you have been there. And I was taking this guy, and he said, hey, my car is impounded. And immediately, red flag, I'm like, this guy's lying to me and making a story up. My car got impounded. I need $50 to get it out. Can you help me? And I wanted to applaud him, like, $50 ask. That's, that's quality ask. Like, you went hard, sir. Congratulations. <laughs> But I immediately, without thinking or praying or consulting with the Spirit, I said, no, I don't have it. And 99% of the time, that would have been true. But this time, I did have it. I had $50 cash in my wallet for some weird reason. And as soon as I said no, the Holy Spirit said, what's wrong with you? And I didn't realize it, man. I'm getting emotional thinking about it. My heart had gotten locked up around finances. I had forgotten what the heart of God was with my giving. And he said, what's wrong with you that you can't release what you have? It's not yours. Whew. I pulled that money out, and I had to apologize. The guy I said, I'm really sorry. He knew I was a pastor. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I lied to you. Here's the money you asked for. And hear me. I'm still convinced it was a lie. I'm still convinced he was lying to me. And God said, I want you to give that. And I gave him the money, and God set my heart free. The guy got out of the car, and I started weeping, and I realized, man, the kingdom of God had stopped at my greed. And it stopped at my inability to release what I thought was mine. And God said, I want all of it. If you think it's about 10% on Sunday, it's about 100% on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. I want it all. And often, it shows up in our money first. 
He looks at this little lady who drops in the two smallest coins in their culture, and he says, she gave her fortune. And I wonder today, are we giving God out of our margin, or are we giving him our fortune? I also think it's wildly interesting how quickly we count what is possible with God while we live very loudly in the community around us. We, man, we will go shop it up. Man, I will buy all the coffee. <laughs> I will go out to eat every single night. But when it comes to radical generosity to someone in need, suddenly I don't have it. <laughs> Are you with me? Sorry, that was a little. <laughs> suddenly we feel like we don't have it to give. Can I encourage you that God, like Jesus in this moment, is sitting on the chair by the giving box of our lives and watching. And he's saying, I wonder, I wonder if their hearts are pure for me. I wonder if they will actually go the distance of seeing what I care about and who I love and giving in the same way. This is particularly helpful for a church like ours. Some of you are very young in faith or you've come to Christ in the last couple of years. And for you, you're just kind of learning the scriptures and community, but generosity is like that weird thing that charlatan pastors talk about because they want to get wealthy. I promise you, there are no wealthy pastors in this church, okay? But can I encourage you that your generosity has more to do with your spiritual formation than it does with our bills at the church? Your generosity to missions organizations and missionaries and to tithe to the local storehouses, local churches all over our community, meeting needs for the city around us, that has more to do with your spiritual formation than it does with me. And maybe one of the areas that God is encouraging us in, just like the widow, is to be wildly generous and wildly committed to God's way through our generosity. Maybe God is looking to form something in you that he has not yet. Are you with me? I want to close with this. Um, just a simple question. Who are you becoming? And are you living the kind of generosity that attracts Jesus? The final question that he seems to be poking at, I love this about the Gospel of Mark. He masterfully puts two narratives side by side. The story of a man we shouldn't be like and the story of a woman we need to be like. And he's asking us the question, who are you becoming? Who are you going to be like? What is it you emulate? Because only one person in this story draws the attraction and the eye of Jesus. Will you stand to your feet? I don't think there's any better way for us to respond than simply to say, God, you have my all. Um, one of the ways to show that is simply to put both of your hands out to open them to the Lord. If, if you go all across the world this morning as a beggar, I was in Czech Republic years ago and I was so impacted by the beggars on the street. The way that they would display begging, I'm going to show you, okay? It's actually a physical posture. It's how you knew that they were beggars. And I actually think it's what God's inviting us to in our posture to him. So in our culture, we're still demanding even as we beg. But this is what they look like. You see how humble that is? Couldn't see their face. Couldn't see anything. 
It wasn't about them. Hands above their heads saying, I have nothing. But there's something equal about this posture. I'm open to receiving everything. God, I have nothing, but what I do have is yours. And I want everything. And so right now, can I just invite you to maybe take on a a physical posture of humility, opening your arms. For some of you, you may need to get down on your knees and just say, God, what's mine belongs to you. There's, There's room. There's room up here. I want to offer you that opportunity. If you just need to come and get on the floor before the Lord and just say, my life is yours. My heart is yours. My relationships, my money, my vocation, my passions, they're yours. Can I invite you to do that now? Because God, we just, we return our lives to you. Lord, we open ourselves up to what it means to belong to you. And the things that we have clung to Father, our vanity, the way that people see us, our need to be important, our need to draw attention, Father, we lay those things at your feet and we repent. Go ahead. If there was something on that list that the Holy Spirit gave you an urgency about, a quickening, would you just deal with that now and just repent? Lord, I give that back to you. Father, as a pastor, I just ask you to forgive me of the places where I have wanted influence and respect. Forgive me. I hear the words of John the Baptist. He says, I've got to diminish and he's got to be, he's got to increase. And some of us have been standing in the limelight and Jesus is saying, get out of the limelight. Turn it to me. So Lord, we just surrender that. This thing's not about us. My clothes, what I do, my influence, my voice, it's not about us. Father, we confess right now, Lord, that our hearts have gone astray in that way. We've been more like the teachers of the law than we cared to admit. Wash us, Lord Jesus. Please forgive us. Father, we open our hearts and our lives to you. Take our lives and use them for your glory, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, be pleased among us. I deeply believe that the Lord wants to give some prophetic words right now. It's not a plan. It's nothing we had on the agenda, but if you feel like the Lord's stirring something in you, uh, even a, a confession, like just, I, I want to give this over, lay this thing down. He loves our broken and contrite hearts before him. We open our lives. Jesus, I thank you that you have come and you gave your very best, you gave your life. And you're requiring of us, Lord, that we don't hold on to anything or make this life about us. God, that we would have that posture of a pauper. 
open arms and open hearts, ready to give and ready to receive. Father, I thank you for fresh encounters with your Holy Spirit today. There's some in this place who have been holding on so tightly to the things of this world. And as their palms unclench, Holy Spirit, you are going to fill them. I pray for a fullness of your spirit today. Lord, blow fresh breath and fresh wind over your people, God. Would you ignite a flame in our hearts, God, to be fully devoted to you, fully surrendered to your way. God, I thank you. I thank you for every man and woman in this room, Lord. I thank you that you are igniting the sacrifice of your people. You're reminding people in the earth that there are people who are devoted to God. Lord, help us to live as the nameless and faceless, the poor widows who are willing to give our all for the sake of Jesus. Receive our hearts, God. Teach us. We're so, we live so confused, we don't even know how to give our all sometimes. Can we do something today? We're always up against the clock in church, and I know that. So this is what I want to do. Um, I want to invite you to linger, um, but I also know that some of you can't. And so we're going to just keep this posture, this attitude. If you're a guest with us, um, I would love to connect with you, or one of our people would be in the back just to connect with you. But we want to give you an opportunity to linger in God's presence and to let him loose some things. For some of you, you are, you are terrified of finances because you have been poor. And you actually feel like, man, if, if I live untethered to this thing, I'm going to go back to that place. And God wants to break off this spirit of fear and lead you into a spirit of provision and abundance, a mindset where you live from his fullness all the time. And so we're going to pray into that, but I, I want to give you permission. If you need to leave, you can, um, but I want to invite you to linger with the Lord. Let the Holy Spirit touch you. Our prayer team, can I invite you guys to come? If you're here in the room, Ashley, Justin, you guys. Ashley, <laughs> on the floor there, sorry. Gabby and David, will you guys come pray with folks as well? Here's the final thing. I didn't say this. Some of you, the, the Holy Spirit is actually calling you to the gift of generosity. It's one of the gifts that we don't talk about a lot, where you actually prevail in generosity and you feel the kingdom of God like exploding in you, like joy when you give. It just flows out. For some of you today, I feel like the Lord wants to give you the gift of generosity. It surpasses just being generous. It's like something that you are flowing in the grace and the personality of Jesus when you're doing it. If you want that, I actually want you to come and pray with David and Gabby. They have that. They flow in that naturally, not naturally, supernaturally. The Lord has put that on them. But would you just come and let them pray with you and pray over you? And uh, here's an indicator. If you're scared to death to give money, if the Lord has stolen or the enemy has stolen joy around money, you might start seeing the grace, the gift of generosity exploding in your life as the Holy Spirit frees you. So would you just come and receive prayer?